I was told by a good friend, Kurt, that Western Michigan, people from here, spring break, 40% of them go away. We are the other 60%, and that's going to be okay. We are going to continue in worship through the word. We're going to look at one of the most famous I am statements. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. In fact, I was talking to someone uh, about what we're going to be looking at, and she said that her mother, as she was dying, just continued to let people know and to, to memorize John 14, 1 through 6, about the way and the truth of the life. She wanted everyone to hear that. Before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the context of where we are as we get to John 14. Uh, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Hosanna in the highest, king of Israel, palm branches being uh, waved, uh, cloaks being put down. He comes in as, as the king of Israel, Jesus does. Then the disciples hear him pray this to his father. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now you have John 13. They're in the upper room. They're ready to celebrate Passover. Jesus gets up, water, and he starts as a rabbi. He starts to wa he washes the feet of his disciples. They do not know what to do with this. Why is this happening? In fact, Jesus says, later on, you'll understand it. And then Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they look around. Who's he talking about? And he leans over to Judas, and he says, go what you're going to do quickly. Then as he talks about this death that is coming, Peter Bold Peter says, even if the rest of these desert you, I will be there for you. And to Peter, he says, you're going to disown me three times before the rooster crows. The disciples of Jesus, their hearts are deeply troubled. And that's when we come into John 14, 1 through 6. You can please stand for the reading of God's word. Found on page 875, if you have a Crossroads Bible. Otherwise, again, it is John 14, 1 through 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may be seated. As I've already been setting up, their hearts are troubled. Right away, Jesus, as the rabbi, as the teacher, he wants to comfort them. 
And he says, believe in me and believe in God. What he's trying to convey there is you've been with me for three years. I have taken care of you. Trust me. You have relationship with me. You know I've been sent by the Father. So he's trying to just kind of get things down to a point of saying, I am here with you. Then he says, there's a phrase here now that really gives context to the I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that phrase is, my father's house has many rooms. Remember that we're in a patriarchal society. The patriarch is the kingpin, top of the hierarchy. As the patriarch, he has certain responsibilities within, in Israel's history and the time of Jesus. One of them is to take care of those needs, which include provision. So financially, if someone within the patriarch's family was uh, financially in debt, going to debtor's uh, jail, he would take care of them. He would pay off the debt. Legal issues, physical, needed a doctor's visit to be healed, he would pay for the, the bill. He would take care of that. Protection, Abraham, remember, and his 318 men went after Lot to save him when the kings took him away. Lot was his nephew. He had been under his father's house, his protection. One of the things that's important is when it says father's house has many rooms. In Hebrew, father's house means, or it's pronounced bedev. And the whole idea is, if you're under my house and under my protection and under my provision, you are gonna be okay. If you're not under a patriarch's protection, and provision and house, you are not gonna be okay. We'll talk more about what that looks like. You could have three generations living in one of these uh, father's house. Grandfather, the patriarch, grandmother, nieces, nephews, uncles, aunts, sons, daughter-in-laws, we're all there. I'm gonna show a picture, depiction of a betev. First floor is where you'd have uh, the animals, it's where you'd have the day-to-day -day living when things were cooked, where they were cooked, where people got together, where they had a meal. Um, it's believed by one author, which I think makes sense, is when uh, Mary and Joseph came and they stayed in a manger, what they actually did is they stayed in someone's home, a father's house, and they stayed with the animals. That was the only place that they had for them. On the upstairs is where you had the rooms. So they lived, each person in these rooms, Grandma and grandfather, son uh, and his wife, children, everyone had a separate room. Jesus is saying, I have many rooms prepared for you. The story of Ruth really drives home this idea of the patriarch and the father's house. Naomi and her husband and her two sons leave Israel because of a famine and go to Moab. While they're there, Naomi's husband dies. The patriarch dies. Then it would go to the oldest son to be the patriarch. The oldest son dies. Then the other son dies. So now you have three women that are left, 
Naomi, Ruth, and another daughter-in-law. And Naomi says, we have to go back to Israel. The two of you stay in Moab. Go back to your homes and see if your families will take you back in. And the one daughter-in-law leaves tearfully. But Ruth clings to Naomi. She says, I will not leave you. Your God is my God. And she's trying to tell her, go back to your family. You can be under someone's protection and provision. I will go with you. So they go together. They're back in Israel. Again, they do not have a patriarch. So, one of the things that we see again and again in Scripture, and we try to, for me, it was like, why does he keep saying this? The orphan, the widow, the poor, they had to be cared for, again, because they're not under the protection of the patriarch. So, Naomi sends Ruth into a field to harvest some of the crop, to bring home some of the food. She does this. Naomi learns that they're actually in Boaz, his field, who is a related to them. And then you go through the whole story, eventually, of Boaz marrying Ruth. Therefore, she now is under the protection and provision of a patriarch. And they come to be in the father's house, Petev. And Naomi comes to be with them. And the children stay in that home. So that is everything. The patriarch is everything in that story. Now we have Jesus talking to the disciples. And he's saying, my father's house has many rooms and I'm going to take you there. He is the father's son. He comes with the father's authority. And he assures them that as they leave this life for immortality, they will be with him in the Father's house. Thomas, always being inquisitive, inquisitive, asked the question, how do we know the way to the Father's house? Today, many think that such a statement, that Jesus as God's Son is the only way to the Father, is narrow, We're in a pluralistic, postmodern society. There are different ways. In the past, of course, there's different ways to different gods, different religions. Uh, The Canaanite gods, we had this idea of appeasement many times. So you have uh, Moloch. uh, You had the sacrifice of children as a way of uh, appeasing him so that he would provide for the people. You have Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a king, but he was also a god within that culture. Egyptian culture, and he, there were lesser gods there. Greeks and the Romans, we, have the, we learned in uh, uh, junior high about the um, polytheistic, and it, at many times these gods were kind of trivial, but they ran the show. Um, in Islam, we have Muhammad who wrote the Quran. Allah is the God. And what we have here is that Muhammad Ali, who's a famous boxer, he would be interviewed uh, before he died, and he was asked, would, would you or will you now be in Allah's presence? And he said, I don't know. But I, do, I have done as many good things and as many works that I can do that I pray and I hope that I will be in his presence. For the Hindu, the reincarnation is a caste system. These religions, again, are looking at a works righteousness so that they can have a relationship and approval of God. 
Today, I think, and I see, I, I spent 30 years working with college students. Um, I saw things really come into focus probably five, 10 years ago with this idea that there are many paths to God. God has many different names. If you're going up a mountain, there's all these different paths. It's just a matter of which path is right for you. Uh, I had, um, back in Wheaton for almost 30 years, I had a neighbor, neighbor named Don. Don was an interesting individual. Don was a tax attorney, very, very bright. Don would also, when I was uh, cutting my grass, I could see Don coming around the corner, sidewalk, and I, I shut off my lawnmower, and I'm like, Don, what's up? He said, I wrote a poem. I think I was the only person in the whole neighborhood that would listen to his poems. So I would just let Don go on. And, he had, and everything had a meaning. So he'd, write a, he'd say a poem, but then he'd explain it for about a half hour. So my wife would always laugh. She's like, did Don get you again? I'm like, I, I like hearing Don's poetry. <laughs> then Don came to me and said, Brian, I have a wonderful idea. I'm going to write a book. It's going to be about living a wise life financially, physically, spiritually, and I'd like you to read the chapters. And he said, I've already gone to Eastern religions. I've taken from that. I've taken from other religions around the world. I'm really interested what you think, given that you're a Christian. And when he thought of Jesus, he thought of him as a great rabbi, a great teacher, that he was a moral person, that he was wise. It was interesting when I talked to him because I would say, he would say things about Jesus and I'm like, Don, let's just look in the Bible because that's a, a good source to see who this Jesus really is. And I would go through and say, he's saying he's God's son. He's saying he's divine. And Don would kind of look at me and he goes, oh, okay. Then I would just continue to go through the Bible. I'd continue to go through who the Father was. I would go through the gospel that Christ died in our place that we are now children of God. Basics for what we believe as Christians. And Don finally said to me, Brian, that's good for you. I am so thankful that that's the faith you have. But I'm taking a different path, and when it's all said and done, we're gonna end up in the same place. So, take care. Don't be, don't be too stressed about this. Um, Jesus makes a very, very, very specific claim. I am the way, and then he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And I wanted to show a mountain. This is a special mountain because something really special happens on it every year. For 100 years in France, they've had the Tour de France. 180 cyclists in these teams they would go on the, you know, on, the, on the flat roads. They're, you know, they go 30 plus miles an hour. I mean, if you've ever biked or cycled, I mean, I'm 16, 17 mile an hour guy maybe. My wife is 20 miles and she's beyond me. These guys go as fast as they can. It's amazing, great athletes. But once they would come to the mountains, that's where you'd see what they're made of. And these mountains would have switchbacks. And these switchbacks were the only way that you could get to the top of the mountain. There are no shortcuts. There are no ways of going over that mountain. In the same way, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the narrow way. In fact, as we think of scriptures, we think of 
uh, the Tower of Babel, wide view, all humanity, and then we get down to Abraham, one person, all of humanity, then it gets down to Jesus, God's son. So our faith is a narrow one. There's no way to the Father but through Christ. The question I have is, I think at times I've had more of a gospel plus understanding of getting of my relationship with the Father and being in his house. And this is what I mean by that. Um, I've been taking Gospel Transformation Group, uh, GTG, uh, Pastor Brandon Hurth and some others have worked on it. And one of the things you find out is, for me, I found out I'm a people pleaser. And I, I knew that I've been that my whole life. Um, I, wanted you, I want you to like me. Um, it's, it's very hard if you don't like me. Why don't you like me? Maybe I'll change. And this uh, teaching has gotten to the more of a, a bedrock foundation that says, if I perform in a certain way, then you will approve of me. Then you will like me. So in human relationships with people, I've seen it again and again and again, this cycle. I remember in college, I changed from one major to, to chemistry. And I had a chemistry professor, Dr. Miller, looked like Einstein. I mean, just hair out here and big mustache and books everywhere in his office. I mean, I went into it, just a mess. And he sat me down. He said, Brian, I, I want to talk to you a little bit. I said, okay. He's like, you've changed to a chemistry major. Uh, that's, a, that's a good change. I said, okay. And he said, um, the other faculty in the chemistry department have been talking about you. Half of us think you're going to do really well. The other half of us think that you're not going to do very well at all because we think you're a little lazy. And then he said, nothing. I kept looking at him. And he was like, I'm done. I left the room. <laughs> Dr. Miller laid it out here. If you want to have a relationship with me as your professor, if you want to be in, you better perform. The insidious thing that happens is then I turn that into my relationship with God or specifically in ministry and this idea got into my head is if I perform well enough, I will earn God's approval. So this is, this can be very dangerous. So for me, as a college pastor, I was the first college pastor at a church, 6,000 people there, there were about 150 students that were there one night on a Thursday night. We had the leaders there. My wife, Kimberly, left. She's like, honey, what are you doing? I'm like, I just want to stay back. And I remember sitting and looking at this auditorium that held 500 people, and I had 150 people there. And all I kept thinking of was, I failed you, God. My performance isn't good enough. And what was really, really difficult was one of my colleagues said to me, Brian, healthy things grow. And I knew exactly what he meant. He meant healthy things grow numerically. So if the ministry is not growing, your performance isn't cutting it. And to me, it got down to that point of, well, does God approve of me? Is he proud of me? Is he still, still my heavenly father who loves me? It took a lot of time as I went through that. It still can go on, even at my age. 
It can be house churches. How many house churches came? If there's a lot of people that are there, sometimes it'll get into me and say, I'm proud, look at this. For this sermon, I had so many people saying, I'm praying for you, all these texts. And then I had one that was right to the point. Brian, God does not care at all about your performance. In fact, he really doesn't even care about you in the sense that it's about God's people being fed from God's word and their, their lives being changed for that next week to live out that word. And the question I would have for us is, all of us, are we living in this idea of performance will give me the approval I want from God? And that could be in so many different ways, and they're very good ways. But there's a twist, a gospel plus. Look how much I pray. Look how much I give to kingdom work. Look how I'm a witness to my coworkers, to my neighbors. You, you fill in the blank. The important thing, though, and the most important thing is the gospel says Jesus did it all. Jesus came as God's son, lived us in this life. He took our place on the cross, our punishment. He rose again from the dead saying that it is finished and that we now are adopted sons and daughters of the king. I have a sister who has uh, two, um, two sons and a daughter that were adopted. And there is no difference at all between the love that she has for those adopted children, my uh, nieces, my niece and my nephews, than for the child that she had through birth. Can you grasp in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, that God loves you, God the Father loves you now, and he is never gonna love you less, and he is never gonna love you more, because, again, you're his adopted son, adopted daughter. You don't have to perform for God. There's a great freedom in that because if you don't have to perform for God and you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, this is the first and greatest commandment, it allows you then to love your neighbor as yourself because you're secure in that identity. And then you can go out and say, on mission, there are all these things happening with with sex trafficking, I can, that's, that's a passion I have. I want to be involved in that. Or you can go to Every Man a Warrior and get into the study of God's word with other men. Women's ministry, you name it, house church. I want to be in my neighborhood and impact. I want to impact my neighborhood, the 90% rule. My neighbors, my coworkers, I want to impact them for Christ. You can do that, but not as a way of approval, but as a way of saying thank you, God, for what, who you are and what you've given me. Amen? Amen. Um, there's a song that Will is going to sing with the worship team, uh, Who You Say I Am, and it talks there about my father has many rooms, and Jesus has prepared a place, and he has a prepared a place for you and I for all eternity. I am the way. The next thing is I am the truth. And again, these I am statements are a very clear indication. I am means Jesus is God. I am the truth. If you're talking about truth, I think one of the things you have to talk about is trust, especially in relationships. 
when lies are there, trust in a relationship decreases significantly. Um, all you have to do right now, uh, please don't do this, yeah, whip out your iPhone and just look at news. And you're going to see again and again and again in politics and sports uh, this idea of someone kind of spinning the truth. So a football coach is caught in a, with, with something that he knew about. There's evidence that says he did it. He says, I didn't do it. And then the next day, he comes up with a statement that's a tweet, not even an interview, with a tweet that says, I made a mistake. He doesn't say, I lied. You lied. You didn't just make a mistake. So the trust in that coach and that trust goes, goes way down in my mind. I'm like, what is happening with that person? We have the same thing that happens in our relationships. We have trust that builds up. That's really the currency of relationships. And if there is a significant lie, it goes down dramatically. I had an employee that uh, we worked together. I, I loved him as a brother in Christ. One day I got an email. And he said, I'm, I'm resigning. I said, why are you resigning? Didn't hear anything. About an hour after that, I got a call from HR. Ryan, we need you to come down. Went down to HR. And they said, this person is claiming that you overworked him, that uh, you lied to him, that you were not fair with him, that you discriminated against him. And I remember just hearing all these things and saying, I didn't do those. But my relationship with that person was bankrupt at that point. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. Oxford uh, and Cambridge professor, brilliant. He said, do not put your complete faith in anyone other than God because they will always let you down due to their sinful natures. It is unfair to hold any person and to say, I only have complete faith in you. I have faith and that trust only belongs first and foremost in God. How do we know Jesus is trustworthy? Because he says, I am the truth. He wants to be in relationship with us now and forever. One of the reasons, or one of the things I think that's very important is that we believe that the Bible is true. And I had a really interesting thing happen, conversation with someone, where they said, do you think Jesus thought he was the son of God? I said, yes, I mean, it's, it's in the Bible, it's in the Gospels, I can show you. What if the Bible isn't true? Well, why would you say the Bible isn't true? We kind of went back and forth a little bit of this. I wanted to put on the screen, at Crossroads, what do we believe about the Bible? We kind of assume these things, but what does it actually look like? We believe the Bible is God's word written down by persons who were moved to write what they wrote by God's spirit. All the words of scripture are inspired by God without our error in all they teach and are the final authority in all things. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, 2 Peter 1, 21. And we know that 2 Timothy, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, teaching and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the question we have is, do you believe that? Do you believe all of scripture? And one of the things we really try to do at Crossroads, and I love, and I've only been here a little over a year, is that we preach the word. We're unapologetic about that. And I read, in fact, I read just about 50 applications for partnership, which is our, our membership plan. I did that 
a few weeks ago. And uh, one of the things it says at the beginning is, why do you want to become a partner at Crossroads? And again, and again, and again. Because of the unapologetic preaching of God's word. And I see Will over there. It's also about the passionate worship that we have. Word and worship is what we lift up. Because of this, and because we know the Bible is true, then what Jesus says about himself is true, and we can have faith in that and trust in that. C.S. Lewis, again, I'll bring him up. Big brain, brilliant. In his late 20s, he said, I'm gonna go through the Bible, and I'm gonna prove to myself, and I'm gonna let everyone else know about it. It's full of myths, it's full of lies. He read the Bible cover to cover, and at the end, he said he was totally surprised, because what he did is he fell down on his knees, and he says that there is, not only is Jesus real, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Savior, he is the way to God the Father, and he came to faith in Christ right there by reading the Bible. And I've heard this story many times, I've seen it myself when I've shared the gospel, by actually getting people into the word, the word has power. If the Bible's trustworthy and true, Jesus is trustworthy and true, these are statements that Jesus makes about himself that I want us just to go through and let the truth of this go from our mind and to our hearts. The first truth about Jesus in John's gospel, he's the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Second person in the Trinity, God the Father gave him the agency to be the creator. All things were created by him and for him in Colossians. He was a tabernacle. So as we think of the Israelites surrounding the camp and the tabernacle, God's presence was there. Jesus, the Christ, tabernacled with us. His presence, God's presence was with us. He's the Messiah, the promised one. Prophecy coming true. Lion of the tribe of Judah, King of kings, Lord of lords. He referred to himself consistently as God's son and also as my father. In fact, he did it so often. At one point, the religious leaders said, you just called God your father. And he said, yes, I did. And they said, that is blasphemy. You've just said you're God. And Jesus said, yes, I did. So he said, this is my father. Son of man, he only uses this to describe himself. And he talks about it being lifted up like a snake. Remember the bronze snake? It was lifted up. The Israelites were being attacked by poisonous snakes in Numbers 21. And God says, here's the solution. Take a bronze snake, hold it up. If the people will do this, if they'll believe and look at the bronze snake, they'll be saved. And Jesus is saying, this is what's gonna happen to me. He's predicting his death on the cross. I will be lifted up to save others. Then we have the I am statements that are true. We've been studying these. Just wanna read over them and remember the teachings we've been going through. I'm the bread of life from John 6. I'm the light of the world, from John 8. I am the door, in John 10. And then I am the way, the truth, and the life, from John 14. Jesus is the way, 
Jesus is the truth, and now he talks about I am the life. Now, with life, there's a number of ways of looking at that. One is biological life, right? Organs, blood, oxygen. One, one of my sisters is a doctor. The other sister is a nurse. I was actually pre-med, and uh, it was somewhere in like biology lab. I'm dissecting a frog and doing something else, and I realized I hate that. I, 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 hate, I hate fluids. I can't do this. So I became the pastor. My mother's still mad about that. She was not pleased that I did not go that route. Um, we also have life that talks about the networks that we have. We have brothers, sisters, uh, girlfriends, uh, uh, spouses, um, aunts, uncles. So we have this network of people, and we talk about social media as a social network. Jesus is talking about something well beyond that. He's talking about life that is abundant. John 17, 3. This is what it says about life. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a major theme throughout John. Eternal life, I used to believe this when I first became a Christian, eternal life has to talk about one day I'll get to heaven. And Jesus says, no. It is about abundant life now. It is about the fact that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a relationship with Jesus, we have a relationship with God the Father, and the Holy Spirit lives in us as an eternal inheritance. That is what we have within this abundant life. There's another thing that happens with that is it can be easy to say, you know, now I have a health and wealth gospel. If I have abundant life, then terrible things or difficult things are not gonna happen to me. And if I went around and just started pointing at people and saying, what are some difficulties you're going through? It would be heartbreaking what people are going through. If it's not you, it's someone else you know. It can be illness. It can be the loss of a job. It can be death. I mean, Alzheimer's, cancer, all these things happen. Um, just want to share one thing uh, with myself as I was thinking about this abundant life and wanting to live in the reality of my relationship with Jesus and, and the Father. Um, about four years, had an illness. Um, I was very sick and it impacted uh, my emotions. I was depressed. Um, my wife was a great support, but I, I just, this abundant life, I just didn't feel that at all. And a person gave me this passage, and the passage was given to me definitely in a, in a, as a way of encouraging me Philippians 4, 5, 5, or Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The difficulty I had was that I still had anxiety, and I did not have peace. And someone said, you know what? you need to look at the greater context of that passage. And the greater context is, context is found in Philippians 4, 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So the first thing, rejoice in the Lord always, is worship. First and foremost, look to God. Even in the difficulties, we can worship him. Even in the difficulties, we can come to church in this gathering and worship him 
through song and through the word. It's about getting the focus off of ourselves and on God. The next thing is, let your gentleness be evident to all. That talks about humility. Micah 6.8, walk humbly with your God. Humility is a true view of self before God and others. Before God, that true view is, I am your son, I am your daughter. Between others, it's, I sin, you sin, but we can love one another as we love our neighbor. The final one said, final phrase was, um, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. And that phrase means the Lord is near as in drawing you near. I am drawing you close to me. So when you put this, put this idea of it being in the context of worship, being humble, Jesus draws you near, then and only then do you go into. Do not be anxious about anything. Because what has happened, Tim Keller has a, a saying, it's not about thinking more of yourself. It's not, not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking, thinking of yourself less. It is good. I like that. Not more. Don't puff yourself up. Don't degrade yourself. But think of yourself less. Think of God more. Think of your brothers and sisters more. The other thing I'd say about that is you do not Within this church body, we talk about being a family. You are not alone. If you're going through something like this alone, I would just cry out to you to tell another brother or sister in Christ. I mean, any of the, the, any of the pastors would get together, the staff, um, the elders. So please do not. What a terrible thing for you to be lonely and going through things while you're in this gathering. And I pray that that is not you, but if it is, just talk to me afterwards. I'd love to have a conversation, pray for you. We'll have other staff praying. The idea of abundant life and the difficulties hit home for me in the life of Phil Kruger. Phil was a uh, staff person uh, that I had in the ministry to international students. I'm in Chicago. I'd fly out to Colorado Springs. Phil's the kind of guy, in fact, the only other person that I think I, I just hit it off in a short period of time with uh, was Rod. Rod and I spent about 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes together, and I felt like I knew him my whole life. I mean, just loves the Lord, joy of the Lord, has a vision of passion for who, he is, who Christ is. Phil was that way. I met him, he was about 15 years older than me. He took me under his wing. He said, hey, let me, let me talk to you about godly leadership. His wife, Dwan, two daughters. He was a loving father, loving husband. I looked at him, and I, in my mind, I thought, this guy has it all together. Then he invited me to his home. I go there, and he is on a recliner. And I'm like, oh, he's, he's reclining, no big deal, but he stayed on the recliner. And then uh, he told me, he's like, Brian, I, I haven't told you this, but um, I actually have a degenerative disease, and that... I, down my spinal column, bone continues to grow back into it, and it pinches the nerves all the way down there. So I think at one point he had 11 surgeries to try to take away some of that bone. He was in pain all the time. Painkillers cannot take all that pain away. But you know what? 
he still had abundant life that was coming from him. And that source had to be Christ. There's no other explanation. He came out to see me as a college pastor teach once. That was in March um, of 01. Then I got a call from him in May, a few months later, the day brain tumor. And it was very fast acting. I got a call from his wife, Dwan, that Phil wants me to fly out to Colorado Springs from Chicago. Um, they don't know how much longer he has. I get out there, and he um, was unconscious, uh, in a coma, and they said he, he's going to live a few more days. But they did not expect him to respond anymore. But Dwan says, I wish you'd have been here yesterday. Because Phil, just for a minute, he got up, he sat up, and he had a piece about him on his face. And he said to Dwan, he said, Dwan, I see light. She says, Phil, you see light? And he said, I feel Jesus is calling me home. Then that was the last thing that Phil ever said. And I believe that he went from this life to eternity, living humble, living an abundant life now and there forever. Just final thoughts. The Beitev that we've been studying, the father's house, the patriarch, you have a son. He wants to get married. Arrange marriage. The patriarch says to him, you need to build a room for your wife, for your kids, future kids. Until you build the room, your wife, you're not gonna get married and you're not gonna bring your wife here. So, the son gets to work building a house or building a room off of the father's house. Dad, am I ready? It's not good enough. Keep going. Keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. The, the bride has no idea when they're gonna come. All of a sudden, one day, they say, that's it. The room is done. The wedding will take place. Wedding party goes to the bride's village. Shout of the horns. Shofar. The bride comes out, and then the bride is taken back to the father's house, the patriarch's house, and they are wed. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. As a church at Crossroads, not just Crossroads, in Grand Rapids, in America, in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, the church universal, we will, we will, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be in God's house, the Father's house forever. And Jesus, again, will be our groom. If you read the end of Revelation, that is such a beautiful, beautiful way to remember where we're heading. And just, just keep that in mind, that it is so much beyond just your own walk with the Lord. It is us, and it is the world. It's about missions. We're gonna go into um, communion now. One of the things Jesus taught, in fact, one of the, the things that actually John the Baptist said to him is you are the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That goes back to the first Passover. Slaughter the lamb, blood over the post, angel of death crosses over, the next day they're redeemed, they're freed from slavery. Into, into freedom. God goes before them. 
Jesus, as the Passover lamb, as John knew, would be slain. His blood would be over the cross, and death would pass over us, and it does pass over us, and that we have now eternal life in Christ and with the Father. As you come to this time of communion, this is a remembrance of that fact that Jesus is the Passover lamb. But it's also the reality that we live on the other side of the cross, and we know that he was resurrected, he ascended, and he will come again. So when you're ready, please come to the communion table.